Revelation 20. We're looking at the book of life. We're going to look at the last verse of chapter 20 of the last book of the Bible, Revelation. We're going to begin a look at what I call the other destination. We love to talk about heaven, and especially when we think of our loved ones and when we think of our own decay and decline and and uh, heading each one of us toward eternity. We love to talk about the streets of gold, but of the 40-plus times that eternity is talked about, Jesus, two-for-one, talked about eternal destruction over eternal bliss. It's interesting, uh, Jesus emphasized more than anything else the other destination. I guess it makes heaven sweeter. It also makes evangelism more of an impetus to us but verse 15 it says in anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire for just a few moments I want you to listen and we're going to be reading in Luke 16 but I want you to listen to an article a fellow by the name of John Thomas wrote and it ran in Moody Monthly many years ago and I have to say that it's been 20 years or so. I've never seen another article like it. Probably got so many bad letters to the editor that, that they just don't run stuff like that anymore. But the title of that article was called That Hideous Doctrine. Listen to one of the, the better presentations of what the Bible presents as the other destination. That hideous doctrine of hell is fading. How often have you thought of it in the past month? Does it make any difference in your concern for others, in your witness? Is it a constant and proper burden? Most believers would have to say no, but the individual isn't the only one to blame. After all, the doctrine no longer gets its float in the church parade. It's become a museum piece at best, stored in the shadows, off in a far corner. The reality of hell, however, demands that we haul the monstrous thing out again and study it until it changes us. Ugly, garish, familiar as it is, this doctrine will indeed have a daily, practical, and personal effect on every believer who comes to term with its force. Our Lord's words on the subject are unnerving. Jesus tells us, first of all, that it's a place of great physical pain. Jesus said the rich man's initial remarks conclude with his most pressing concern, I am in agony in this flame. We don't make enough of this. We all have experienced pain to some degree. We know it can make a mockery of all of life's goals and beauties. We do not seem to know pain as a hint of hell, a searing foretaste of what will befall those who do not know Christ, and a grim reminder of what we will be spared from. God does not leave us with simply the mute fact of hell's physical pain. He tells us how real people re will respond to that pain. Our Lord is not being in any way over-expressing, merely telling us the truth. Second, it will also be a place of weeping. Weeping is not something we get a grip on. It's something that grips us. Recall how you were affected the last time you heard someone weep. Remember how you were moved with compassion? You wanted to protect or restore that person? The Lord wants us to know and consider what an upsetting experience it is for the person in hell. Another response of hell will be wailing. While weeping attracts sympathy, wailing frightens and offends us. 
It's the pitiable ball of a soul seeking to escape, hurt beyond repair, eternally damaged. Wail, the sound gone grotesque because of conclusions that we can't live with. A fourth response will be gnashing of teeth. Why? Perhaps of anger or frustration. It may be a defense against crying out or an intense pause when one is too weary to cry any longer. Hell has other aspects rarely considered, which are both curious and frightening. On earth, we take for granted two physical properties that help us keep physically and mentally and emotionally stable. The first is light. The second is solid, fixed surfaces. Oddly, these two dependables will not accommodate those in hell. Hell is a place of darkness. Imagine the person who has just entered hell, a neighbor, your relative, maybe a co-worker or friend. After a roar of physical pain blasts him, he spends his first moments wailing and gnashing his teeth. But after a season, he grows accustomed to the pain, not that it's become tolerable, but that his capacity for it has enlarged to comprehend it. Yet... He is not consumed by it. Though he hurts, he is now able to think, and he instinctively looks about him. But as he looks, he sees only blackness. In his past life, he learned that if he looked long enough, a glow of light somewhere would yield definition to his surroundings. So he blinks and strains to focus his eyes, but his efforts yield only blackness. He turns and strains his eyes in another direction. He waits. He sees nothing but unyielding black ink. It clings to him. It smothers him. It oppresses him. Realizing the darkness is not going to give way, he nervously begins to feel for something solid to get his bearings. He reaches for walls or, or rocks or trees or chairs. He stretches his legs to feel the ground, and he touches nothing. For hell is the bottomless pit. However, the new occupant is slow to learn. In growing panic, he kicks his feet. He waves his arms. He stretches. He lunges, but he finds nothing. And after more feverish tries, he pauses from exhaustion, suspended in black. Suddenly, with a scream, he kicks, twists, and lunges until he is again too exhausted to move. He hangs there, alone with his pain, Unable to touch a solid object or see a solitary thing, he begins to weep. His sobs choke through the darkness. They become weak, and then they're lost in hell's roar. As time passes, he begins to do what the rich man did. He again starts to think. His first thoughts are of hope. You see, he still thinks as he did on earth, where he kept himself alive with hope. When things got bad, he always found a way out. If he felt pain, he took medicine. If he was hungry, he ate food. If he lost love, there was more love to be found. So he cast about in his mind for a plan to apply to the hope building in his chest. Of course, he thinks, Jesus, the God of love, he can get me out of this. He cries out with a surge, Jesus, Jesus, you were right. Help me. Get me out of here. He waits, breathing hard with desperation. As the sound of his voice slips into the darkness and is lost, he tries again. I believe, Jesus, I believe now, save me from this. 
Again, the darkness mothers his words. Our sinner is not unique. Everyone in hell believes. When he wearies of appeals, he does what anyone else would do, assesses his situation, and attempts to adapt. But then it hits him. This is forever. Jesus made it very clear. He used the same word for forever to describe both heaven and hell. Forever, he thinks, and his mind labors through the blackness until he aches. Forever, he whispers in wonder. The idea deepens, widens, and towers over him. The awful truth spreads before him like endless overlapping slats. When I put in 10,000 centuries of time here, I will not have accomplished one thing. I will not have one second less to spend here. As the rich man pleaded for a drop of water, so too our new occupant enters a similar ambition. In life he learned that even bad things could be tolerated if one could find temporary relief. Perhaps even hell, if one could rest from time to time, would be more tolerable. He learns, though, that the smoke of his torment goes up forever and ever, and he has no rest day or night. No rest day and night. Think of that. Thoughts of this happening to people we know, people like us, are too terrifying to entertain for long. The idea of allowing someone to endure such torture for eternity violates the sensibilities of even the most severe judge among us. We simply cannot bear it. But our thoughts of hell will never be as unmanageable as its reality. We must take this doctrine of hell, therefore, and make sure we practically are affected by it. A hard look at this doctrine should first change our view of sin. Most believers do not take sin as seriously as God does. We need to realize that in God's eyes and his actual plan, sin deserves eternal punishment in hell. We can actually learn by comparison to hate sin as God hates it. As the reality of hell violates and offends us, for example, so sin violates and offends God. As we cannot bear to look upon the horrors of hell, so God cannot bear to look upon the horrors of sin. As hell revolts us to the point of hatred for it, so also God finds sin revolting. The comparison is not perfect, but it offers us a start. Finally, the truth of hell should encourage our witness. Can we ever hear a sigh of weariness, see a moment of doubt, or feel pain without being reminded of that place? In all honesty, can we see any unbeliever watch his petty human activities and realize what he has in store and not be moved as Christ was? with compassion, how it should encourage us to witness in word and in deed that hideous doctrine may grip our souls in dark terror and make us weep. But let us be sure it also prompts us to holiness and to compassion. Let's open our Bibles to Luke 16. And I want to read to you the story that Jesus told that prompts such an awful gaze at a hideous place like hell. In Luke 16, starting in verse 19, 
Jesus tells a story. It's interesting. In no other parable does Jesus name anybody's name. In this parable, he names a person. Therefore, many Bible teachers conclude that Jesus was not telling a parable. They conclude that Jesus was relaying what happened to a historic person that people knew about in Jerusalem that was a beggar by the name of Lazarus and to a rich man the beggar lived outside his home and in Luke 16 from verses 19 through verse 31 Jesus tells the most arresting story and with this article I just read in mind I hope that Christ's words sink deeply in our heart and the other destination is never one we can think passingly about but that it'll deeply settle on our hearts and make us want to take hell out of people's destination by pointing them to Jesus Christ Luke 16 you just follow along I'm going to read verses 19 through 31 there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table moreover the dogs came and licked his sores so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom the rich man also died and was buried and being in torments in Hades he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom then he cried and said father Abraham have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame but Abraham said son remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things but now he is comforted and you are tormented and besides all this between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us then he said I beg you therefore father that you would send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment Abraham said to him they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them and he said no father Abraham but if one goes to them from the dead they will repent but he said to him if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead very sobering portion of scripture let's bow and ask the Lord to open our hearts to the message of the other destination Father in heaven, I thank you that we can sing of the sweet by and by when we shall meet on that beautiful shore. But not all of us are going to meet, for all of us have in the circle of our friends, family and acquaintances, co-workers, schoolmates, neighbors, those who do not know Jesus and who are going to die in their sin your word teaches no one goes to hell for not hearing about Jesus people go to hell because they die in their sins 
and how pressing it is that they be told that there is a remedy for the sins that shall cause them to drown forever in a lake of fire. We celebrate our blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. We celebrate that we know whom we have believed and we are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day. But we want to be sobered into thinking about how important it is to persuade men, as the Apostle Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Some of us don't know enough about the terror of the Lord because we're not persuading men. Through your words, Lord Jesus, from your word we look into to know therefore the terror of the Lord, your wrath which will be eternally directed against every sin that is not underneath the blood of the cross of Calvary. God forgave my sins in Jesus' name. And I've been born again in Jesus' name. And I have a blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Thank you that the cup of blessing is a cup of blessed assurance that you are ours. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hell is always earned and deserved, and heaven is never earned nor deserved. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, speak of this place called Gehenna, which Jesus used to describe the future abode of the dead that were not with their sins removed by his sacrifice. Gehenna was a valley in Christ's time. It's situated on the southwest corner of Jerusalem. In fact, very interestingly enough, it's situated right, right on the southwest corner where Caiaphas' house, the upper room, and those great events of the Last Supper, the inauguration of the Lord's Table, and Pentecost all occur on that southwest corner of Jerusalem. And right over the wall was the valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. In Old Testament times, it was a place of pagan practices. Most notably, it was a place where children were burned alive to pacify the gods of Canaan. Second Chronicles 33 and Jeremiah 7 describe the horrific child sacrifice that Israel participated in to pacify the, the false, lifeless gods of Canaan. In the New Testament times, that valley had become a spot for trash, it was a spot where garbage was hauled, where unburied bodies of criminals were left and exposed to, to rot outdoors. The rotting of garbage and refuse was crawling with worms. It smoldered with fire. It was a place where no one wanted to go even close to it. The Valley of Gehenna would strongly portray a vivid picture to everybody in the first century when Jesus talked about it. The picture would be one of gnawing worms, of burning fire, and a horrible place of pain. And when Jesus portrayed the end of those who ignore him, those who neglect him, and thus reject him as being that place, it was a picture that Jesus painted of horrible and of excruciating pain. In Revelation 20, we find death, that's the place where bodies go and Hades that's the place where lost souls go delivering up their contents into the lake of fire 
as at the great white throne, the godless who died in their sins are consigned to hell. Remember, again, no one can ever say that God sent them to hell. People send themselves to hell. In fact, we need to listen to the words of Jesus. Let's start in Matthew chapter 3. And I just want to real quickly for the next about 10 or 12 minutes take you on a journey first through John the Baptist, the forerunner, and then Christ affirming John the Baptist and going from there. And look at Jesus' warning about hell. It says in Matthew 3 and verse 7, and if you've never studied the doctrine of hell, you might take a pen because you'll get it all because this is all there is. It's, it's very clear. It's not one you have to elusively track around the Bible. It's just very vivid. In Matthew 3 and verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, this is John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, uh, when he saw them coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. He doesn't seem to have ever gone to any of these seeker-friendly service seminars. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John said, sinners face the wrath to come. Verse 10 gets more specific. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit, that's always the hallmark of salvation. Not a decision, not a membership, not being baptized, not praying the right thing, but bearing fruit from God. Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire of hell. Verse 12, he prophesied of of Christ's coming. He said in verse 11, I baptize you with water and the repentance, but he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Verse 12, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he, that's Jesus, will burn up the chaff with un quenchable fire. That's hell. Now what did Jesus have to say about this? Well look at chapter 5 verse 22. After he's announced and John points to him and says there's the Lamb of God. He's the one that will take away the sin that's going to drown you in hell. What did Jesus say about it? Well in Matthew 5 22 Jesus said, but I say unto you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, blockhead, Wow, that's not, that seems pretty tame in our vocabulary. Call him blockhead. Shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. You know what Jesus said? The cold, malignant, hardened, unregenerate heart that, that has only venom and vileness coming out of it, which would call a fellow human being in the image of God a fool is in danger of hellfire. Pretty serious stuff. Look at verse 29. Jesus doesn't just mention this once. Remember, he mentions it 22 times. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, your right eye, I mean, that was their, their aiming eye for, for fighting. That was their eye that they needed for, for their life was so critical. They didn't have uh, visual correction back then. If your right eye, which is so vital to, to survive, offends you if it keeps leading you off into lustful sin he's talking about adultery in the context here pluck it out cast it from you 
Verse 29 continues, For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus is very serious about this. Again, it doesn't seem he went to seeker-friendly training either because this is a very big crowd listening to him and he, he starts out preaching about hell to them. This is his launching sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He continues, look at verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. He's saying stop the intake from the eye, stop the involvement from the hand. Now he's not talking about self-mutilation. You know, he's talking about take whatever measure it takes to, to stop the intake and stop the involvement with sin. Because you can never have assurance of heaven as long as there's persistent, unrepentant sin in the life. God just made it that way. And he says, if you want to have assurance of your salvation, stop the intake, stop the participation. You'll never have the assurance. We have people, they want assurance, but they don't want to stop sinning in our culture today. Well, verse 13 of chapter 7, Jesus says the same thing. And he says all the way through his ministry, and I'll pick up the speed a little bit here. Enter by the narrow gate, Matthew 7, 13, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. That's one of his expressions of hell, and there are many who go in by it. Verse 19, in case we're not sure what destruction is, he says this, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, verse 19, and thrown into the fire. Same fire John the Baptist was talking about. Jesus confirms, affirms, and carries it a step further and, and explains it. And he says, fruit bearing is the evidence of salvation. He said, no fruit, no life. No fruit, no heaven. No fruit, no assurance of heaven. He continues in verse 23 and says this, and then, that's at the last day of the judgment, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus said there, depart from me. That's, that's why we call hell the eternal separation from God. Not from the presence of God, because it says in Psalm 139, we can't even be away from God in hell. But separated from his love, facing only his wrath against sin. Well, it continues. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus doesn't stop. This is one sermon, by the way. So far, one, two, three, four, five, six times. Here's the seventh one in 8.12. He, he says, as a follow-up on this, uh, the great multitudes were following him in verse 1, and, and he performs this miracle, and so they keep following him into Capernaum, and, and in verse 12 of chapter 8, he says this, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In this place, he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness, weeping, and teeth gnashing. Look at verse 29. Somebody else pipes up and talks about this place. We get a little testimony about it from, from some sure occupants of hell for whom it was created. It says in chapter 8, verse 29, And suddenly they cried out, these demons, exceeding fierce, in this, these two demon-possessed men who, men who lived in the tombs. And when the demons came out of these two demonized men, 
Suddenly they cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? See, the demons have no doubt about torment. They have no doubt. They even know when it's going to start. And they said, Are you starting this early? Are you starting to lay it on us ahead of time? Jesus said, No. No, not ahead of time. Of course, he sends them out and they have to leave the pigs. Well, turn to Luke, because we're going to Luke 16. Keep going, Mark to Luke, chapter 8, and I'll start in verse 26, because uh, Jesus is experiencing the same group of men. Luke 8, 26. And they sailed in the country of the Gadarenes, and then verse 27, outstepped these men who had no clothes, these demonized. And verse 28, look at this, because Luke adds a little bit. When they saw Jesus... It only describes this one man. He cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? Look at this. I beg you, do not torment me. And when he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, it often seized him. He was kept under guard. He was bound. He was shackled. And he broke the bonds and was driven into the wilderness. And then here Jesus confronts the demons. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into, and here it is, the abyss, the abode of the damned, and the place where the demons were consigned to await the judgment of God. Well, Jesus warns of hell. Jesus warns that there is a place coming that is real, that is awful, that is horrible. In fact, John Bunyan said this in his writings, Must hell be avoided at all costs? Yes. How impassioned were these Puritan writers as John Bunyan warned this, In hell thou shalt have none but a company of damned souls with an innumerable company of devils to keep company with thee. While thou art in this world, the very thought of the devil's appearing to thee makes thy flesh to tremble and thine hair to stand upon thy head. But, oh, what wilt thou do when the devil's appearing will not be but the beginning of the real society of all the devils of hell to be with thee, to be howling, roaring, and screeching in such a hideous manner that thou wilt be at thy wit's end and ready to run stark mad for the anguish and the torment. Bunyan continues, If after 10,000 years the end should come, there would be comfort. But here is the misery. Here thou must be forever. When thou seest an innumerable company of howling devils that thou art amongst, thou shalt think, This is my portion forever. Oh, this one word, ever, how it will torment thy soul. Well, Jesus, as we turn to Luke 16... And that's where we're going to end up. Jesus describes hell. Now, Jesus isn't alone in describing hell. Paul says it's a place of tribulation and anguish. He said it's the eternal destination of the damned. The writer of Hebrews says it's the place of God's wrath. Peter says it's a prison and an abyss. Jude says it's eternal fire, blackness, and darkness forever. The apostle John says it's a sea burning with fire and brimstone, and the smoke of the torment rises forever and ever. But Jesus is the only one that tells us graphically what it's like. And let me just briefly relate it to you. In Luke 16, Jesus describes a person. 
and he gives a portrait, a foretaste of heaven and hell. And that person describes for us in language we can understand several points. Let me just share verse 22 and 23. It says in Luke 16, 22, an interesting point. It says, so it was when the beggar died, was he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and was buried. The first thing Jesus tells us is only our body dies. Our soul doesn't die and our soul doesn't sleep. Only the body dies. Death takes the body away. Hades became the repository for the soul's of the lost in the place of torment for the redeemed in the place of bliss called Abraham's bosom. And there they both become conscious and they begin looking around. And verse 23 says, if you look down, and being in torments, so they're conscious, the rich man is, in Hades he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And verse 23 says both are conscious. Both seem to have an intuitive recognition of Abraham who happened to have died 20 centuries before both the rich man and Lazarus and they seem to be able to see far off across long distances and they seem to be able to recognize those whom they had known in this life and those they had never met. And it appears that they can talk in the afterlife and they can even communicate across these distances. Very interesting. But Jesus begins with this story to chronicle how everything from this life is magnified in the life to come. Everything good is magnified exponentially to be bliss. Everything evil is magnified eternally to be the damnable weight that sinks eternally in the lake of fire. But before we end, what's the good news? Why did Jesus tell this story? And why did Jesus, and I only went through about eight of them of the 22, why did Jesus talk so much about hell? Because Jesus Christ died for sinners. And all who receive him are forgiven of their sins. Now I want you to turn to chapter 6 of Hebrews. This is going to be our, our cutover to the good news. Chapter 6 of Hebrews, most people know all about the first part of Hebrews 6, and that's where they think they can't have assurance of their salvation. Actually, the, the sixth chapter of Hebrews is the chapter of assurance because it says it's impossible for anyone to fall away and be renewed, and therefore it's impossible to fall away from salvation. It's actually a chapter of assurance. But look at the most assuring part of it is at the end of chapter 6, and it says in, in verse 16... For indeed men swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation. But 17, God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. 18, that by two immutable things by which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. Why would we flee? Why would we want refuge? And why would we want hope? Because there's so much talk about hell. So how do you have hope? Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. We have this hope as an anchor of our souls. What does that do? Well, look at verse 24 of chapter 7, just across the page in my Bible. Because he continues forever as this eternal high priest, 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, has become higher than the heavens, who doesn't need daily as those high priests offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the people's, for he did this once when he offered up himself. What's the good news? That Jesus Christ, the perfect priest, offered himself the perfect sacrifice to give to us the perfect salvation. A salvation we couldn't earn, therefore we cannot lose. A salvation we didn't deserve, therefore in God's unmerited favor, his gracious offering, he extends it to us. And for those who receive the gift of the sacrifice of his son, their sins are gone and will never be remembered the most horrible thing Jesus ever said to anyone on earth was he pointed to a group of people that were mocking hard-heartedly at him and he said, you will die in your sins. What he was telling him is, you will go to hell. All who die in their sins will eternally pay the price for those sins. 